Harvard Divinity School. Reiki, Energy Medicine, and Post-Materialism, April 5th, 2023. My name is Giovanna Parmigiani, and I'm the host of this series organized within the Transcendence and Transformation Initiative at the CSWR here at Harvard Divinity School. This series focuses on ways of knowing that are often labeled as non-rational, traditionally referred to as noses in Western philosophical and religious traditions, and often understood in contraposition to science. These ways of knowing are becoming more and more influential in contemporary societies, popular culture, and academic research. What is the place of spirit possession, divination, and experiences perceived as out of the ordinary in our lives. How can we study and approach this type of phenomena? Going beyond dichotomies such as body and mind, ordinary and extraordinary, reason and experience, and matter and spirit, this series hosts scholars of different disciplines and practitioners interested in exploring and expanding the boundaries of what counts as knowledge today. So it is with great pleasure that I introduce today's guest, Dr. Natalie Dyer. Dr. Dyer is as a research scientist with Connor Hall Health at University Hospitals and the president of the Center for Reiki Research. Dr. Dyer studies the effects of Reiki biofield therapy on physical and psychological health and lead efforts to educate Reiki practitioners and the public about Reiki research. As shamanic Reiki master, Dr. Dyer's research is primarily focused on mind, body, and biofield therapies for improving psychological health and well being. Dr. Dyer also conducts research on universal love and is the co creator of the Universal Love Scale, a psychometrically validated measure of the embodiment experience of universal love. So, thank you, Natalie, for being with us today and welcome virtually at HDX. Thank you, Giovanni. I'm so happy to be here. I like, like we said earlier, I love the Harvard Divinity School. So wonderful. Because you spent some time at Harvard in the past, right? I did. Yes, five years after my, after my doctorate. Do you miss us? <laughs> I do <laughs> very much. <laughs> wonderful. So today we'll talk about the role of Reiki and energy healing and improving health and well-being. Uh, about the possibility of non-materialist scientific paradigm and on we we'll talk about your latest research on universal love sounds good so natalie let's go let's get to the basics so what is reiki how did you get interested in it what's your relationship with it and if you had any back have any backstory to share with us i always love to start our conversation with that Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll just define it first for, for those who don't know. So it's a, it's a Japanese word, um, which reiki, so two words, rei, which means universal, and ki, which means uh, life force energy. Um, so it's translated to universal life force energy. Some people uh, define it as universally guided life force energy. Um, there's various ways of, of um, defining it, but basically that's what it means. And it's a, a form of biofield healing. So there's other forms um, from different traditions throughout the world. Um, so this one originates in Japan, uh, Qigong, for example, from China. Um, and then there's ones that have developed within the Western medical system, like therapeutic touch, which um, nurses developed for treating patients. Um, so biofield healing uh, basically is um, a practitioner who is trained in some methodology and I should a caveat is that we don't actually need to be trained in this. It's kind of, I think it's a very natural form of healing um, where life force energy, spirit, chi, um, whatever you want to call it, is um, channeled within, within the healer and um, given to uh, the healy or the client or the patient um, to balance their life force energy. So it, it affects the energy and the information within their, uh, within their body and around their body as well, if you want to their electromagnetic field or their aura, um, whatever you want to call it. So um, how I got interested in it, um, it kind of just came to me. Uh, so I was doing my PhD at the time. I, I've heard of Reiki before, but I didn't, wasn't calling me. I wasn't interested in it. I didn't know anything about it, <laughs> um, but I went to an event. It was a charity um, for, I think it was an African orphanage. 
Um, and it was like a kind of a psychic fair sort of thing that some of my friends were going to and thought, okay, I'll go. And um, you pay $10 and you get some kind of reading from various uh, various psychics and healers. And um, I came a little late. So <laughs> all of the, the good psychics were taken and there was like a Reiki person. And I was like, okay, I'll just go to this Reiki person. Um, and at that time, I was doing a lot of meditation, more, more than I am now, unfortunately. Um, I had more time during my PhD than I do now, I guess. So that I'm spending a lot of time in meditation, working on um, my energy field a lot, being very present, connected to nature. And I felt like in a really, really good space. And so I went to the Reiki master and he um, checked out my energy uh, system and he went through my, my chakras and and he said, wow, you've been doing a lot of meditation. Your energy is <laughs> super clear and balanced. And I felt, okay, yeah, I definitely feel that way. So he's picking up on something. And he he said, there's nothing for me to work on today. And so do you want to just talk? And so I was like, yeah, what's Reiki? And um, and then I thought, wow, this sounds really, really interesting. I'm, I'll take the training. So I just ended up taking the training. I didn't believe in it. I just, it was just kind of like... <laughs> serendipitous I just was led to it's like I'll take the training and then I'm like what I'm I don't really believe that this even works I don't know what I'm doing but um so he was like why are you here I'm like I don't know um but once I'm I'm an evidence-based person I can't help it so but I'm also drawn to these things like these interesting um practices and techniques uh very open-minded but also very skeptical so um I didn't believe it until I saw the effect of it so um, once I did the training level one, um, I had some friends over at different times and uh, practiced on them um, and seeing the effect, um, feeling it too, because I wasn't sure what what's this energy, what is energy going to feel like and it feels like you're energized, feels tingly, feels like you have energy, obviously, <laughs> to do something like you've had a lot of coffee or caffeine or something. And so it feels like this flow going through and it's different for everyone, but that's how it was for me. So I was like, wow, I can actually feel energy um, and then seeing the emotional response in people um, and the physical response so reducing pain um, crying is, it's a big part of of reiki and energy medicine is this um, emotional release so seeing um, my friends release old old wounds and traumas on the reiki table um, was quite powerful and then feeling it myself feeling that that compassion that empathy that kind of went with it um, and Reiki is a really, it's an interesting thing. So much came of it that I wasn't um, anticipating, like an increase in intuition, um, this connection um, with others. Um, yeah, just feeling their feelings. I mean, a lot of, a lot more empathy and compassion. Um, so it was just like immediate valuable feedback. And wow, I'm really actually helping people this way, um, getting at some deep stuff. So um, then I continued in the training um, until uh, the Reiki master. So um, Reiki's been incredible. I, I think it's absolutely changed my life. And I think um, that's true for a lot of people that have gone on that journey as well. Uh, so yeah, and, and then it just naturally, because I was already doing my PhD, it kind of it changed a lot for me. My, my PhD was in um, a materialist paradigm, which we'll talk about later and, and looking at um, like a psychopharmacological approach to um, anxiety, specifically anxiety, but um, all mental illness really and looking at like okay what's the neurochemical uh, situation with anxiety and how can we fix that with drugs uh, for example and then when I got into the Reiki and, and more meditation I was like there's something deeper going on here and um, so my whole interest changed uh, so I started getting into um, more research on mindfulness meditation and, and Reiki so um, that was early on in my PhD and I had to like be patient and wait to get through and then and then start doing uh some of the research once I was into my postdoc so that's uh yeah that's my story of Reiki and wonderful wonderful <laughs> for sharing that and since yeah. I want us to be on the same page you know sharing some personal you know aspects of our research I was also trained in level one Reiki and it happened to me on my field work during my field work and I distinctively remember this feeling in my hands once they were activated um, of a kind of cold, hot feeling. Mm. Like they were very hot, but very cold, actually. If I touched my skin, it was cold, but I felt a kind of very strong um, heat in my, the palms of my hands. Uh, 
and that also was important for me, although I decided not to go through the whole, um, all, all the levels of Reiki, energy healing remained some, um, an important aspect of my practice as well. So I'm very happy to talk also about this with you. Um, I have a number of questions, but before maybe you mentioned that you are an evidence-based person. So what's your academic background more in detail? I think you mentioned slightly, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's different forms of evidence. So for me, obviously, just as a caveat, doing those Reiki sessions, that's, you know, anecdotal, personal, wow, this is really helping. Um, but then I get into the, the more empirical research as well. Um, so my academic background, I, so I guess going all the way back to high school, I was just very interested in truth. I mean, even, even before high school, um, growing up in sort of a, a family where <laughs> there's a lot of pathologies and a lot of um, lack of emotional regulation and just like a lot of upheaval and immaturity and, and kind of like, this isn't right. Like just kind of asking questions, like what's, what's truth? What's, you know, there's more to life than this. And um, so my interest was um, in the mind and also um, in, in the life uh, sciences. So biology, so psychology and biology were my main interests. Um, so for my bachelor's, I went to the university of Toronto and I got a double major in biology and psychology. <laughs> so studying the mind and, and the body. And um, and uh, yeah, like I said earlier, I was I was kind of a materi materialist academically, but definitely a spiritual person. So I was living in these kind of two minds, as I like to call it, or like the split <laughs> split self, where I was having all these experiences of um, out of body experiences at night, for example, um, powerful ones, um, intuitions, mostly in dreams, like psychic dreams. Um, all kinds of experiences and then just like a deep connection with if you want to call God source um, what felt like my real home just kind of this like I know I'm here for a short period of time and I know like I'm really connected to um, this bigger consciousness if you want to call it that um, and so what am I doing here so a lot of questions um, that that I was asking uh, so I'm doing <laughs> doing all this this work in biology and psychology, and I'm having all these other experiences that are not congruent with what I was learning. And I, I was kind of disappointed that they were, the academics, at least at University of Toronto, um, were dismissing all of the things that I was experiencing. Um, and understandably, because we're in this, this paradise, materialist paradigm still. Um, and so I kind of was going back and forth a lot. And um, it wasn't until I, I started um, in the Eastern practices, like the meditation and, and the Reiki, like I mentioned earlier, that I really felt kind of an embodiment in all of that, whereas um, before it was kind of like knowledge seeking, I guess I could say. Um, but I carried on and then <laughs> I started, um, I did my PhD at Queen's University, which is also in Canada in Kingston. And um, that was in neuroscience. So kind of blending um, biology and psychology. And I studied uh, the neural regulation of anxiety. So looking at the neural circuitry and chemistry of fear and fear-related behaviors and anticipatory fear. And um, because I had a history of anxiety myself. So a lot of scientists, what they study is personally relevant as well. So um, there's often some kind of story there. So I had anxiety and depression as a child. Uh, a lot of my family did. Um, mix of genes and environment, of course. And um, I thought, yeah, pharmaceuticals, that's kind of the way to go. A uh, <laughs> little bit of therapy, yeah, but you know, it's a brain thing. <laughs> let's, let's fix it in the brain. And, um, and then, yeah, started these practices, like I mentioned, uh, shifted my worldview in a more embodied, um, deep way, uh, rather than a surface, surface area. Um, and then I decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to shift into um, this kind of research when I'm done my PhD. So I um, was lucky enough, super fortunate to get a position at Harvard University um, in the in Langer Mindfulness Lab. So she uh, studies mindfulness and the connection between mind and body and putting putting your mind or your psychology in certain states and measuring the body. So um, playing with your perception of time and seeing how the body actually follows your perception of time rather than um, what we would consider objective time and, and a lot of really cool, interesting studies like that. And then I did a, a second postdoc at Harvard Medical School. I couldn't leave Harvard <laughs> on um, yoga research. So that was um, looking at stress, anxiety, and uh, in populations that are um, experience a lot of burnout. So um, teachers in um, urban areas, um, nurses, 
uh, veterans, firefighters, frontline professionals, essentially is what they call them. So um, giving them the tools um, that I found useful as well. Uh, love yoga. I've been doing yoga for 12, 12 or so years and um, giving them those tools and then measuring their, their psychological states after they've engaged in that. So um, that's my background and how it kind of transformed over time. And to this day, I'm still doing um, that kind of research, integrative medicine, um, mostly for psychological health, but also for, for pain and, and different, um, different medical conditions as well. Wonderful. Uh, but um, can you tell us some of your findings? So um, what did you find? What does Reiki do? Um, yeah, so I've done about four or five Reiki, five Reiki studies now. Um, I should know. <laughs> um, and uh, the first one was a large scale study. It's still the largest Reiki study conducted. Um, and it's, it's what's called a pragmatic trial. So a lot of these studies there aren't um, a control group um, and that's okay. You know, there's different kinds of research. It doesn't always have to have a control. Of course, um, certain aspects uh, of studies need to have control, but this was a, called a pragmatic effectiveness trial. So we took um, Reiki, personal Reiki practice, so not in the hospital, private practice uh, across the United States. And we, every time they had a client come in, they did a pre and post assessment of um, various symptoms. So um, again, anxiety, stress, those are big ones, pain, fatigue, nausea. Um, and then we saw dramatic improvements just from the one Reiki session. Um, so that was published in 2019, I believe. Um, and that's when I joined the Center for Reiki Research. They were looking for someone to help run that study while I was doing my postdoc. Um, and then we did a, another study. Actually, we got more, more, more details from that. We also did a qualitative assessment, which um, was published this year. Um, last year, actually, we're in 2023 now. <laughs> um, looking at what is the experience of receiving Reiki, because I think that's a big part of its transformative power, is what the client or the patient um, experiences during that session. So I mentioned earlier um, the crying and the emotional release that happens. Um, so we were interested in um, that subjective component. So we, we identified um, eight themes. Um, so relaxation, that's a really common one. People feel very relaxed. So it elicits what's called the relaxation response or putting people out of their fight and flight into their parasympathetic or rest and digest state. Um, there's uh, physical sensations, body sensations, um, energetic, what we call energetic sensations. So weird, like waves of energy or like um, uh, auditory. Uh, so perception changes. So we see colors with, with eyes closed. We might see multiple colors. We might hear certain things. Um, we might, a few uh, a few of the clients smelt different things. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, but the visual aspect is a big part of it. Um, and then the emotional component for sure. Um, so usually crying or feeling like something was released that was deeply held um, or just positive emotions like feeling love, divine love, um, unconditional love. Um, and also um, some people go on a, a kind of a spiritual journey is what we called it, uh, where they feel like they travel somewhere or they, they meet a deceased relative and they're given a message or some kind of what they would consider a spiritual being, whether it's an angel or um, some kind of religious figure. Um, so that's kind of the, the map of the experience of Reiki. And so now our next paper is looking at um, what that, that kind of relationship between that experience and those changes in outcomes. So what we found, and it's not published yet, but um, we're presenting it um, at a conference in two weeks, um, is that that emotional component, so having that emotional release, as you would expect, um, affects uh, anxiety, depression, and well-being, a lot of like emotional aspects. So having that release um, actually does reduce anxiety. It does reduce depression. Whereas having these body sensations uh, reduces pain. So it, it's interesting how like different experiences during the session lead to different outcomes. So um, it'd be interesting to look at like chronic pain patients. Is that, does that hold true for them? Is it, do they feel more of a physical sensation during the Reiki? And is that really related to them reducing their pain? Um, and people with uh, major depressive disorder, for example, is there more of an emotional component there that they're experiencing? Um, so we, we did that and that's being written up right now. Um, and then another study um, that's in the process of being published is a distance Reiki study, which I'm particularly interested in, um, distance Reiki. I think that's really fascinating. And this was a, a program for frontline healthcare workers in the UK during COVID. 
So they were given uh, four sessions of Reiki and we looked pre-post at um, anxiety, <laughs> stress, <laughs> pain, uh, fatigue, no sleep, um, and overall well-being. And we, and we see improvements in all of that. And um, we got qualitative feedback as well. Like, wow, this is amazing. And there's a lot of people that are skeptical. They don't believe it, but they're suffering. So they're like, sure, free, you know, free Reiki. Why not? I'll give it a try. I don't believe it, but kind of like me, I didn't really believe it. Um, and then they experience it. Wow, it's amazing. So, um, so our, I should say like a, a study I'm working on developing right now, which is important, I think, is what are those key ingredients in the, um, the ability of Reiki to be effective? So I think um, if you speak to a lot of healers, love is a big component, um, loving the other, um, loving who you're working on, feeling connected with them. Um, compassion, but uh, just like that straight unconditional love where there really is no distinction between you and the other, um, as well as like the ability to just focus and be present, be there. And so I think attention, focus, and love are really key ingredients in the effectiveness of Reiki. So we're developing a study to look at that, uh, which I think is really key and important. Wonderful. Just a clarification question for me, then I will ask some from the audience. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned um, mostly psychological and emotional effect, effects of Reiki, uh, including, you know, some um, help with pain. Mm -hmm. What are, according to you, the relationship between the biofield and the body? Uh, mm -hmm. So is Reiki healing the body in your mm -hmm. experience? Or is it part of, you know, your future research on Reiki at any point? I don't know. What's the, sorry, I just want to clarify, what's the relationship between the biofield and pain? And the body, and, actually, and actually the, body. the body, like, you know, healing mm -hmm. the body, the organs. Um, what yeah, is, so. Anthropology is a disease aspect. Mm -hmm. So the the theory would be that the the energy creates the body, essentially, that it's putting it together, it's mapping out where everything goes, you know, the functioning of it, that the, the energy is primary and the matter comes from that. So we if we get at the the energy, the biofield, we're actually getting at more of the root of issues. So yeah, the theory is that um, any disruption in that energy is going to eventually become physical. So we can use it as a preventative measure as well. So um, energy uh, healers might pick up on something that's like, oh, there's an imbalance here, there might not be any symptoms yet, it could be related to some emotions, some, some past experience that eventually might become physical. Um, if it's not taken care of. Uh, so I hope that answered your question. No, absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> I'm familiar with that. I was wondering whether you would like to include this dimension in, you know, more explicitly in your future studies or not. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Let's move yeah. to some <laughs> questions from the audience. Um, yeah. So Mali, your first question will be addressed in a minute. Um, Larry asks um, if you can talk about the relationships between, between Reiki and healing touch? Mm. That's a good question. I'm not trained in healing touch. And um, it was developed by, um, I think a German, well, healing touch, and then there's therapeutic touch. So those are actually different. Um, I am not sure. I just know that it comes from a Western um, world, not the, not the Japanese origin, and it's more recent. So I'm not sure if it's influenced, where its influence came from. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's working with the same concept where light, light touch with intention um, uh, modifies the biofield in a, in, a, in a healing way. So sorry, I can't give more details there. No, I think it's, it's great. Thank you so much. Uh, Jana asks, can we access your published Reiki studies where we can find them? Yeah, so you can find, um, you can search for my name in Google Scholar, um, but uh, some of them are not open access. So you can send me an email and I can send you a copy. I don't think you can find the full paper unless you have journal access. If you have journal access through your institution or you want to pay for the PDF, you can do that. Um, or you can email me and I'll send you a copy. Wonderful. Thanks a lot for being so um, kind. Christine asks, um, great talk. First of all, thank you, Christine. Um, I've been practicing Reiki for 20 plus years and I'm a Reiki master teacher. Are there opportunities to get involved with Reiki research if one does not have a research or science background? 
Yeah, absolutely. We're always looking for practitioners. I mean, we need the practitioners to run the study. So um, that's a huge component. So you can um, email me um, your information and we can add you to a list of practitioners because like I said, we will be running another study on um, that component of love and, and um, attention and healing. So we're definitely always looking for very experienced. We want very experienced healers. So. Wonderful. I'm so happy when these links happen. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so Anne asks, I teach an undergraduate course on alternative medicine and religion, and I'm looking for a good intro text for Reiki. Have been looking for some time. Any suggestions? Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Anne Baldwin just published a book uh, a couple years ago now. Um, Reiki in clinical practice, I believe it's called. Sorry if I'm not getting that right. Um, I'm going to do a quick. <laughs> uh, well, you can look up and yeah, raking clinical practice, a science-based guide. Um, so I think that's a really good um, academic or medical um, option because I think all like the other books are probably just for the practitioner, not for the not for the the student. So that's a good place to start. Wonderful. And if you are interested in um, being in Cockton with Dr. Dyer, you can email to me if you want. Um, and the email is already in the chat. Um, and I will forward your email to Dr. Dyer if you don't find uh, Dr. Dyer's email, email address uh, easily. Um, so let's move on. And then we'll, thank you for the question. There are many and we'll get back to them. But I would like to ask you, how do you navigate the status of scholar practitioner uh, within academia or mm. now within your the space of your um, scientific research? Did you find any pushback from academic institutions? Um, or as um, Mali was asking, how is this research received among various religious communities, particularly Christianity? Mm, yeah, very good questions. Um, how do I navigate it? So on the personal level, it's not very easy because I'm interested in both and I'm often pulled between them, even though I, you know, I research Reiki, um, but I find myself kind of swinging from, from one to the other. I might spend a lot of time, um, doing Reiki, making a YouTube channel, put some Reiki videos up and I get really into that. And I think it's super valuable and I love helping people in that way. Um, and then the scientist side of me just wants to like, demonstrate that it works and so then I'll maybe get more into the research and so I kind of swing back and forth um always looking for that happy medium imbalance so I, I can't say it's easy because I always feel like I should be focusing more on one or the other but I'm I'm both of those things so I'm always kind of going back and forth um I feel like doing the Reiki makes me um because it's such a loving present thing it feels um, it makes me happier. It feels me, makes me feel like I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, but I can't help wanting to learn and sharing knowledge. So, um, there's a part of me that, that needs that, um, mental stimulation of doing the research and discovery. I love the discovery of looking at the data and, and seeing the results. And, and I am open to it not working, you know, if it, if it doesn't work, I'm going to publish it. Um, and, uh, so, um, and, you know, my primary interest is truth, not proving something that I already believe. Uh, so um, in terms of uh, navigating it in the institutions, I found, um, so when I was doing my PhD, there was some pushback and, and not um, with the institution as a whole, but individuals. So people I was doing my PhD with. So like I said, in the beginning, I was more materialistic. So I kind of transformed and they were like, what's, what's going on with you? Like, <laughs> What happened to you? And I even had a, a friends say oh you should just be a yoga teacher not a scientist and so little yeah thanks and another another uh, student who said like oh don't get into pseudoscience because I said I wanted to study mindfulness it's like how is that so ignorance because using the scientific method for a human experience is science for you know for a practice that's been thousands and thousands of years is, it is science. So um, just silliness like that. So, you know, not really logical. So it doesn't really bother me, but it does kind of maybe inspires me a little more because like, oh, they want to dispel that ignorance. Um, 
but since my PhD, since so at Harvard, it was incredibly accepted. You think, you think like, you know, arguably the top university in the world, maybe the bias is that they're going to be super materialist and, you know, traditional, <laughs> but definitely not super open-minded. Um, a lot of my colleagues were like, oh, I love Reiki. And um, so that was really, really nice. Um, and uh, support from my, I should say back a few years, support from my PhD advisor as well. As soon as I told her I was doing Reiki, she was like, oh, oh you're such a healer. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, and she was a yoga practitioner. So just, and I felt like that was meant to be, you know, being with her and having that support and um, helped me, you know, get my position at Harvard and all of that. So um, I've been lucky. I think, I think um, it's also... I'm a bit younger than some of the the trailblazers like Rupert Sheldrick and you know people that have received a lot of harsh backlash and and violence even so um I think I'm grateful for them for like paving the way that I think there's a lot more open-mindedness now um and integrative medicine alternative medicine whatever term you want to call it, is on the rise there's millions of people um getting treatments and just a disenchantment with the medical system so um and a lot of integrated medicine being integrated into um, conventional healthcare. So uh, there's a culture shift happening. So so it is a lot. Um, it's getting easier, I think. Um, I don't know if there was another question there, but I'm so happy to hear that. Uh, <laughs> uh, and this is a little bit of shout out to my students here among the audience who are very um, interested in the figure of the scholar practitioner because. Um, in a different field, but because I'm an anthropologist, so in anthropology, I live the same space, the, the academic one with the same, you know, attitude, similar attitude to yours, because what I experimented on the field became part of my, at least partially, of my way to inhabit the world. So mm -hmm. if there's no, uh, the old stigma around going native, which is a, you know, a bad expression in inverted commas, um it's easier than let's say 50 years ago there's still some pushback here and there and skepticism around the type of research that a scholar practitioner is especially if it's not christian and this is to ask to answer right. <laughs> uh, Mali's uh, question um to inhabit the academic space um yeah with this yes of... i forgot the the religious uh question um so it depends on the Christianity for sure, because you have laying on of the hands in some Christian traditions. Um, some some uh, religious people have an issue that Reiki is not from Jesus, for example. So in that tradition, it's Jesus working through um, through the individuals, whereas some people say, oh, it's a Japanese man or something. Like I've, I've heard some really silly things like <laughs> energy doesn't come from a Japanese man. It's like, that's not what, <laughs> that's not what we're saying. <laughs> He's just the one who like, discovered this working with it um so you get you know there's a lot of of um so when we ran this big reiki study for example there were a lot of christians getting reiki um i think a third of the sample were christians um so some of them are open to it now the catholic faith i uh, believe um released an article i'm not sure where it was published against reiki so saying that you know do not do reiki this is like um against the religion and um, so of all the religions catholic um, is the only one that has explicitly said um no to reiki essentially so um my interlocutors are all catholic and they all practice reiki so well there you go yeah so it was someone in the church it's not you, you can't speak for all, <laughs> no, I think the, speak um, for all the, catholics. Official, the official doctrine <laughs> because i you know i was raised catholic and i wouldn't you know i'm not anti-catholic i'm not you know so i think it's one person one article doesn't speak for the whole religion and all its people so well the the lived religion aspect is always very interesting beyond mm -hmm. you know you know formal you know even yeah and i think there was and I'm, I'm not good with bible quotes but i was reading the new testament um a while uh like a year ago just like okay i'm gonna read this i'm interested i read it before when i was in school and and there is one part about your thoughts can heal. Um, and to me, that's distance Reiki. So, and use your thoughts to heal. And I don't know the quote, forgive me, but it basically said in there that your thoughts can heal others. So um, it's not saying don't practice this. So Wonderful. Thanks a lot. So another couple of questions from the audience. So Sam asks, can you 
can I ask, of course, how you conceptualize the energy body within the context of Western anatomy medicine? There seem to be some researcher who basically reduced the energy body to either a psychological phenomenon or as an epiphenomenon of the body in some other way, whereas other adhere to other non-Western theoretical systems. What is the current scientific perspective on this in theoretical terms? Hmm, no. <laughs> um, yeah, so a lot of people have different perspectives of it. So, um, and we like to be able to speak to anyone about it. So you can speak to the materialist and say it's, you know, our electromagnetic field, our heart has a field, and that can be influenced. It can be influenced by our thoughts, our perceptions, and other people. So, of course, like being loved, being touched, being hugged is going to be healthy for the heart and for its electromagnetic field. And in this case, it's coming from the matter, you know, it's kind of like emanating from, from the matter. Um, and then we have the more uh, non-materialist approach where um, the primary aspect of reality is consciousness and love. And that generates energy, it generates the field, and then the body is built around that. So we know that there's um, energetic and, and fields that guide the development of neurons, for example. So we can speak in, in that sense as well, but it comes down to like, well, what's the origin of that? Where is that really coming from? So everyone has different perspectives on that. Um, so I, my more perspective is that consciousness is fundamental and that um, energy comes from that. And then the matter um, develops around that. Of course, there's all interaction within that as well. Wonderful. I think it's, maybe the right time to ask you a question on non-materialist science um, hmm. as a cue to this question. So why are you advocating for it? What is the place today of mm -hmm. non-materialist science within the sciences? Hmm. Um, if you want to talk more about that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so we define it as post-materialist um, rather than non-materialist because um, we're including matter and we're not saying there is no matter. We're not uh, dismissing all of the amazing achievements um, within that pair the materialist paradigm. Um, but we're saying there's more going on. We need to expand um, our view of reality and we need to um, account for a lot of the phenomenon that materialism is just saying basically doesn't exist. Um, so um, psi phenomenon, for example, mental influence on physical matter. Um, so all the achievements, from quantum physics, for example. So we're about 100 years behind on updating our science based on those findings where, where we see that the mind and the, the observer plays a key role in what manifests physically. Um, so it's really, it's like, let's expand. Um, it's not really like, let's get rid of all the materialists. And so um, post-materialist science is really about um, addressing scientific materialism, which um, largely states that the mind is nothing but the physical activity of the brain. Um, and so that it's, so consciousness is an emergent property of the uh, neurochemical firing of, of, of the brain. Uh, um, and there's a lot of uh, evidence that suggests that's not true, such as um, people that are clinically, well, brain dead essentially, and they're revived and they've had incredibly vivid experiences um, that, you know, more that were more real than when their brain was functioning, for example, like colors that they've never seen before and um, verifiable um, experiences like visitations from uh, deceased loved ones that they didn't know were dead yet, for example. So there are some verified accounts um, with these, um, the uh, psi phenomenon, um, a lot of verified accounts of children remembering past lives and uh, mediumship that's been validated. Um, of course, you know, you get muddy waters in this area. There are a lot of um, charlatans, you know, there's, there's been a lot of bad research, um, but there is some, some good quality blinded research on, on mediumship. And um, so the idea is that maybe the brain, um, and this isn't a new idea at all, this is probably more the original idea, but the brain acts more like a transceiver, a transmitter receiver of consciousness rather than a producer. So more like like a radio, um, and a lot of the the arguments of materialists is that well, if you injure the brain, you injure the mind. Well, that's true of a radio too, or a television. You you mess with the function, you mess with the physical aspect of it. You're gonna change the reception, uh, for example. Um, so the idea with post-materialism is that the nature of reality may not be fundamentally material. 
um, based on these lines of evidence, um, and that we need to be at least open to studying that um, rather than just rejecting it all. Because why not be open to it? If it's not true, <laughs> we'll figure it out. We, you know, we'll find we'll find that out, and then that's okay. But science needs to be an open method of inquiry. Uh, so that's really the idea behind that. And um, so there's a lot of science, I think 450 scientists that have signed this declaration for its uh, post-materialist science. So we're, we're coming together and saying, yeah, things need to change. There's a group of um, healthcare providers as well that say in medicine, we need to adopt a more post-materialist perspective because there's a lot of like energy medicine, for example, helps people. And if we stay in this materialist view, we're not going to allow for things like Reiki in hospitals, um, which greatly reduce pain and anxiety and stress. And um, so we need to be at least open to including these things. And if they don't work, then, you know, fine, get rid of them. That's, that's not a problem. Um, so I'm advocating for it because I think um, there's been a lot of uh, suffering and damage from materialism. Um, so this, you know, taking all these resources and kind of like the survival of the fittest mentality and, and not understanding our interconnection and, and our oneness. And um, so taking this like post-materialist or um, more spiritual perspective um, should theoretically lead to taking care of each other more and not being as selfish. And um, so I think it would, it greatly will transform the culture and the global culture. And to me, that's a really important aspect of it. So. That's amazing. I mean, from an anthropological perspective, um, I always teach my students in religion healing that biomedicine, of course, has developed within mainstream Western modern ideas about the individual, like the individual and the subject and the person are completely overlapping. While you know, since I teach in a divinity school and we read lots about the anthropology of religion, we learned that for many individual subject and person are not fully overlapping, open, like uh, porous, let's say. And to me, your post-materialist science um, manifesto is an opening up to the possibilities of how to think about a medicine that includes and copes with others' ideals about the the individual and so I salute it with you know great excitement so thank you for being willing to do that within your field thanks a lot um before moving to the question because there are very many and um and very interesting I would like to touch on the wonderful universal love scale um, <laughs> Because I think it's very important when I, I heard a talk from you on, on YouTube and I was oh, really, really very moved, I would say, from mm -hmm. it. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, sure. Um, so the universal love scale is what it sounds like. It's a scale to measure universal love. Um, and and it's a, you know, a self-administered scale. We're not like measuring something physical. It's a self-report scale. So um if you study anything in science, you need to have a way of measuring it. So when we study compassion or we study empathy um, or depression or anxiety, we all have these, these, these self-report questionnaires because how are you gonna know if something changes if you don't have some, some way of measuring it? So you can't um, measure anxiety. <laughs> you can look at like stress responses physically, but with anxiety, it's really like an internal, like I'm worried about this or that. Um, so it's a it's a largely psychological thing. Um, and so to define universal love, um, it's we define it as unconditional love for all of existence um, that is beyond the the subjective self. So um, whereas, you know, in, in comparison, um, a lot of people think of love in general as like for a certain person or like there's obviously the Greeks had so many different versions of love. There's um, platonic love and there's romantic love and and a lot of them involve like the ego so um romantic love can be very painful for example and there's a lot of attachment and um, dramas and <laughs> universal love is kind of the root of all love it is pure love so um it's love without attachment love without desire it's just love for love's sake so um unconditional love in its purest sense um and the idea is that this form of love um is 
the ultimate healer. This might even be the foundation um, of reality. Um, so a lot of people, when they have these transcendent experiences, like near-death experiences, or um, even plant medicine experiences, um, any kind of mystical experience, a uh, common theme is this universal love. Like, wow, it was like all of reality is built on this love. And, um, and I see it as kind of the merging of consciousness into one. It's, it's the unification of our consciousness um, reconnecting. Whereas, you know, some will say like fear or hate, or, you know, is kind of the separation um, and, and heavily involves the ego. So this is an egoless state <clears throat> of love for just love's sake, just full embodiment of love. So um, we wanted to study this and um, still are studying this. So what I mentioned, the Reiki study and looking at uh, the component of love will be looking at universal love as a, uh, as a factor in the, in the healing effects of Reiki. So um, we realized to measure it, <clears throat> it's, it's embodied. So universal love is embodied. And, and when it's embodied, there are certain emotions, behaviors, thoughts, um, and transcendent components. So these are the factors of the universal love scale. Um, so the feeling of love is, is an important part of it, but also the desire to help others or to um, reduce suffering or to be a humanitarian, for example, um, is like a behavioral aspect of universal love. Um, so we laid out all these different aspects of embodied universal love um, to measure it um, in this way. And so um, we correlated it to different aspects. So empathy, it's highly related to empathy, as you would expect, um, compassion, um, positive emotions. Um, it's negatively associated with narcissism, of course, like ego states, um, aggression, anger. Um, so this is all part of validating it as a construct. So um, our paper essentially validates universal love as a construct, like, okay, it exists as something. <laughs> Um, and here's how we can um, measure. So <clears throat> a big thing. I mean, <laughs> huge. <laughs> yeah, you got to play the game. <laughs> it's like, yes, okay. <laughs> I ran the study. So now <laughs> universal love is a thing. Um, so then it's available and it's currently being translated in uh, Turkish. Turkey has just recently, I'm pretty excited, transformed their, their, their hospitals and their education system to integrate um, alternative and complementary medicine. They've made a huge shift. So all of a sudden I, I was noticing all these Reiki papers coming out of Turkey, like what is going on in, in Turkey? And so they've made a huge culture shift over there. And so they're now going to be studying universal love as well. So, um, and I just think it's what everything comes down to and it's super important and um, hope to do a lot more uh, research on that as well and hope other people do too. Wonderful. Um, that's, that's great. Thank you so much. Uh, there are a couple of questions from the audience um, that would like to you, for you to better explain the connection between Reiki and spirituality. So I read one right. from this. From my understanding, Master Usui originally taught Reiki to his students as a modality for spiritual enlightenment. And notice the side effects of physical healing. It's a question. I am curious to hear your insight on how this nature of Reiki might relate to post-materialism. Mm, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, and, I, and that's a really good point. And it, it's kind of like what's happened with yoga a little bit. So yoga is, was to prepare the body for meditation to achieve um, enlightenment or you know, samadhi or spiritual uh, um, insight. Um, and with Reiki now, it's becoming like... Some people don't like the term energy medicine because it's becoming like medicalized and it's it should be more of a spiritual um, thing. But um, that's just a side note. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think Reiki is is a spiritual practice and to connect it with um, post-materialism, um, it's one of what I consider to be the key lines of evidence in favor of post-materialism, especially when you look at um, distance Reiki. So um, when you're able to um, positively affect people, um, at a distance, miles and miles and miles away, um, where their physiology even changes, not to mention their psychology and um, their emotions, then there's something going on a lot deeper. Um, and I do believe that it is um, the consciousness, this non-local effect of consciousness, where we are all connected in some non-local way, um, maybe through like a fundamental entanglement, for example. So even if you want to take like the big bang approach uh, to reality, like everything was connected at some point and 
expanded outward. So with entanglement, any any two aspects that were connected at one point are always connected. Um, so we are all connected. Um, and so the ability to influence someone through being in this very focused loving. So like I said, loving is that unification. So using the love and the focus, you can connect in this way. Um, I think to properly explain the truth about what is really going on with Reiki requires a post-materialist perspective. Um, I can talk to materialists about it and say it's it's relaxing. <laughs> Unless it's the relaxation response and that's healing. So, um, <clears throat> but I think to really get at the truth of it, uh, post-materialist perspective is required. Wonderful. Thanks a lot. So, um, so did you, Mandy asks, did you notice similarities in having patient sessions not working, such as they were on antidepressant or were completely disconnected mm -hmm. with suicide attempt? So I'm assuming they mean like the Reiki not working if they're yes, on Reiki. antidepressants or something. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I find that, um, there, you can kind of tell when someone's on an antidepressant, um, maybe not always, but I find there is like a, <clears throat> a muting of their energy. Um, so, and that's kind of what at least anti-anxiety is what medication is doing in the brain is just kind of lowering the energy. It's like lowering everything. Uh, it's an inhibiting activity in the brain. Um, so I have found kind of this dulling effect, um, which makes sense. I've been on antidepressants. Um, not, not that it's anyone's business. I'm not on them now, but I was on them. Um, and it does kind of, it numbs a lot of aspects of like the richness of the human experience, which includes, you know, the, the negative, but also the positive. So um, look how much poetry and music has come out of deep sadness and pain and suffering. And um, so there's, it's a richness. And I think um, the medications can um, not only reduce the sadness or, you know, the apathy, but also um, the pleasures um, and the connection with spirit as well. Um, and in uh, some side notes, some psychedelic research um, with for treatment resistant depression, a lot of those depressed people say, wow, the medication was just kind of numbing me and just reducing the symptoms. Whereas this therapy with psilocybin, for example, is showing me, it's taking me out of my ego and showing me all these patterns that I've, um, that I've contributed to the way I've felt and gives me like, a, gives them like a new perspective um, where they can essentially reprogram themselves. But getting back to the, the question, it's not that the Reiki wouldn't work. I think it always does something as long as the person is open and open and willing. Um, but I, I have found that it's, like it's just like kind of like a tune tuning it down it's just kind of lowering the energy um and uh a lot of people have a lot of mental activity and you can pick that up when you're working around the head region like the energy's flowing there and like oh okay they're thinking too much or, this is just kind of like oh it's kind of like dark it's like just kind of tuned down a bit so yeah <laughs> thanks a lot there's so many questions i'm scrolling through them um so there are a couple that ask maybe the connection between, in your opinion, between Reiki healing and either mediumship or shamanism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so you mentioned I, it's shamanic Reiki, I often do. Um, and that's because when I started doing Reiki, there was all this extra kind of thing, things going on that I'm like, what's happening here? Like um, an animal energy would show up, for example, like just doing a session and then there's like this lion and I'm like what is this what's going on or or seeing traumas and feeling like different um aspects of the person kind of return all these different things and and saying I think this is a little bit more than Reiki and and some people would agree and some people would say no that's Reiki um but I started to study some shamanic practices with uh different teachers because I thought oh this is this is like shamanism I think and so I think they naturally go together really well. Like we're, we create all these labels, right? And we create these terms for what we're doing, but it's all healing. I think it's all healing within consciousness and within this realm of consciousness and love and um, aspect act, activating and connecting with um, the, un, the realm of the unconscious. So to heal some of some people's um, ailments, we need to go deep into their subconscious and see like what's driving some of these beliefs and some of these behaviors 
that are not um, normally available to our conscious mind. So, and Reiki is is a path to that. Um, so shamanism and and Reiki work really really well together, and they don't even need to be called different things really. Um, and what was the other question? Shamanism and mediumship. Mediumship, yes, yeah, that was a that was something that um, was unexpected um, when I started doing Reiki is connecting with um, deceased loved ones, and and this happens a lot more with distance Reiki, and I think. Um, for me personally, in-person Reiki, I, it's it's more physical. You're you see their body there. You're moving around. Um, for distance Reiki, it's a lot more inward, and you're kind of just like holding them. And so I get a lot more messages. And and with distance Reiki, I've had um, deceased loved ones come through for people, um, and it's it can be really really powerful. And I think it works the same way of connecting with love, um, being focused allows you to connect with the bigger consciousness with the consciousness of others and um and any similar resonant uh frequencies of the individual so our family and our friends the closer we are the closer our our frequencies our consciousnesses are like right there like hard to really explain but we're all really super connected and the more emotionally connected we are the more um we can tap into our energy fields of the other um so very often there be a deceased loved one come through um, with some kind of message and that can be really really powerful it's it's different than just working with the energy um, it's a it's a psycho spiritual healing aspect of it and I think they all work together um, with the same principles <clears throat> of like I said the the non-local connection of our consciousness and love allowing us to have access to this information which is great because it it's kind of like a a safe mechanism where you have to be benevolent <laughs> to gain all this access you know you got to be in this state of love you got to be um, focused and conscious rather than um, in your ego and in um, a materialist kind of framework it's, you wouldn't get access to this information thanks a lot a footnote from the religious studies scholar here um, shamanism is a very contested category within religious studies, so I think that for my students, uh, we're talking about new shamanism mm. and new practices, um, but this was just a footnote. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> shamanism is controversial, there's a lot of, yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Anyways, I think, you know, um, it was a clarification due, but I think your what you wanted to say came through very brilliantly. Okay. Um, Yes, so number of other questions, we're at two o'clock now, but uh, I think we can spend another couple of minutes. Um, so Katarina asks, would you have any recommendations for the process of finding a Reiki practitioner that really clicks with me as mm. someone who wants to try Reiki for my anxiety? Is it important like therapy to find one who you truly feel comfortable with? Oh yeah, definitely. That That relationship is super important because you need to let down your guard a bit. You need to be open. Um, and the more you are and the more you're connected, like like I mentioned with the love, that love connection is going to be really powerful component. If you don't trust the person or you don't feel comfortable, you're going to kind of close off a bit as a protective mechanism. And I think that's really important. Um, so yeah, it depends if you want distance or in person. In person, you'd have to obviously find someone local unless you're willing to travel. Um, and in that case, you would just Google people in your area um, get a feel for them. If, you know, you can have a, a just a chat with them, see if you want to proceed. If they're not open to that, then that's your answer there. <laughs> it's not worth your time. Um, so they should understand that you want to feel comfortable with them. So have a, have a quick meeting and ask them some questions. Um, for distance, it's very open. Um, you can look at different organizations, websites too, if you want someone certified through somebody. So there's the International Center for Reiki Training, uh, Reiki.org, I think you can look and find um, Reiki practitioners in your area that way, um, or distance as well. So um, yeah, and definitely go with how you feel about the person. If you don't like them and you don't resonate with them and you don't feel comfortable telling them your deepest problems, uh, definitely don't go with them. That's wonderful. There's so many questions and I encourage, um, you know, people from the audience to send them over to me so I can uh, forward them to you. There are some asking where to study this kind of things, where are the PhD programs? And I might, you know, give my two cents on this as well. Um, but please, uh, we are wonderful. You, Natalie, you're wonderful. And the audience as well is wonderful with all these questions. But I think it's time to wrap up 
thank you, Dr. Dyer, for your participation and wonderful conversation. And thank you all for having been with us. Please stay tuned on the activities of the CSWR, the Transcendence and Transformation Initiative and of Nauseologies. You can find all this information on the CSWR website that you can find in the chat box, including the registration link for our next Nauseologies event that will be on April 26th. I will have a conversation with Professor Fadike Castor on multiple subjectivities and the ethnographic study of lived religion. Thank you all for being with us and have a great rest of your day. Sponsor, Center for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2023, Preston Fellows of Harvard College.